Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Goat Season. So happy to have you with us. This is a podcast about the greatest individual seasons of television of all time, their most memorable episodes, and their creative teams both in front of and behind the camera. I am your co-host, Phil Mitchell, and along with me is the one and only Mr. Alex Sinesi. How you doing, man? Good, man. Thank you for that beautiful intro. We are so happy to have you with us, listeners. We're here to talk about our favorite seasons of television of all time. Yes. Basically, the structure of this podcast is going to be us going through a season of television, episode by episode, breaking down how the creative team came together and made one of the best groups of episodes of all time. Yeah. Because a season of television, classically, is a single shoot with a single crew, a single group of actors and creators behind the scenes. After a season, you know, you can have people leave, you can have new cast members, you can have new writers, you could even have the showrunner get replaced. When you get to the best season of a show, it's like that show was firing on all cylinders. It was doing its best possible work. It had the best possible combination of talent behind the scenes. That's what we're fascinated with because uh, we love television. We love television like we love movies. We and really a season do. of TV is a chance to talk about our favorite shows as if they were movies, kind of. Is that fair to say? I think you're absolutely right. If you can, I would think about this as us dissecting the best meals ever cooked, baked, created. We're just taking them apart ingredient by ingredient, element by element, texture, flavor, aperitif, all the way to dessert, and it's going to be delicious. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. There will be spoilers. We're always going to try to do an episode recap. So if you haven't seen these shows, go watch them. Enjoy them. We're starting with one of the greatest television shows of all time. I would say that it is the progenitor, the almighty, the, the Zeus that fathered so many children, that had so many offspring. So many shows are trying to replicate what this show has done before, um, but this show just holds the title as being the original, um, the best, and the first to do it. Uh, we're going to be talking about uh, The Sopranos. A show that was the absolute like spearhead of a revolution. The show that kicked off the golden age that made HBO and cable television in general a completely unique force of creative output unlike the networks unlike anything that was happening on television at all really and uh this this is the show that made it all happen yeah 
We're excited to talk about The Sopranos. We'll be taking apart um, each episode of the first season. We're only going to be talking about the first season during this series. And so we're going to be talking about all of the actors who played uh, key roles across the first season, as well as, um, again, the people, the creative teams behind the camera who really contributed so much into making this season of television um, one of the most memorable of all time. It just makes the most sense to start at the beginning with this one because that first season of The Sopranos was such a cultural event. It, yeah. it was an absolutely an earthquake that opened up a totally new realm of possibilities. And as I think we say at other times on this show, if The Sopranos had only been a single season and hadn't gone any further, if it had been canceled, its impact would have still been so great that the golden age would have started anyway. I really I agree. Believe. I yeah. agree. I think also, I mean, the interesting thing about this show is that I think it popularized the idea of the difficult man. I think yes. from Tony, I mean, there have been a few of those characters prior to Tony Soprano. I'm like, I'm thinking Andy Sipowitz from sure. NYPD Blue, but from Tony Springs, again, Don Draper, Walter White. Um, I, I mean, who else uh, can you oh. think of that? I Vic, mean, Vic Mackey, Mackey Al Swearingen. Al Swearingen, uh, yeah, all of these. Dexter things. Morgan, Except Dexter even? Morgan, yeah. yeah. I mean, you can just go on and on and on, and all of these... Really great, vibrant characters, I feel, can be traced back to Tony Soprano. And I think the same goes for so many other of the characters that are in The Sopranos. Carmela Soprano, I think, like, that is another character where you see that archetype of, of the wife, you know, the, the encumbered, the embattled wife shows, showing up, um, excuse me, in, in other television shows. Like, we see that in Breaking Bad. Um, that, that archetype repeats itself. Yeah, you could definitely argue that Tony and Carmela are two of the best examples of these tropes ever. And many other shows, in their attempt to follow The Sopranos' tone, maybe created characters who were more problematic. The trope of the wife who's holding back her charismatic anti-hero husband really became something just like very rote, not a particularly sympathetic or well-rounded group of characters that came out of that. But I think Carmela is an incredibly dynamic, fascinating character with a ton of her own moral equivocations who, uh, yeah, only ar arose from the unique set of circumstances of this show right. being about the mob and being about people from New Jersey. I'm just going to correct you really quickly that, of course, Tony Soprano wasn't the original prestige dramatic anti-hero character that would be jim prophet on the series prophet played by adrian pazdar oh okay thank you of course evil i didn't know that. financial manager who sleeps in a coffin filled with money thank you um, so much for making yeah. me aware of that now sure. i have to go watch the prophet prophet Thank you. <laughs> yeah, it, it aired on Fox. And oh. uh, yeah, it was considered the precursor to the edgy anti-heroes of the Golden Age. I stand corrected. Uh-huh. Oh, it was canceled stand... after three episodes. By oh, the way. wait, there we go. Never mind. <laughs> Never mind. You know, what's interesting is I also think uh, this show gives rise to the idea of auteur television. Uh, oh, the absolutely. idea that it, one single mind could be a force behind great seasons, great runs in television. Again, you have David Chase, an incredible, incredible uh, influence on television. You know, he's directly connected to Matthew Weiner, who went on to create Mad Men. I think he influenced uh, Vince Gilligan in creating Breaking Bad. And even Sean Ryan, who ended up going on to create The Shield. Like, there's so many names that came or sprung from um, auteur television. Um, and I think Chase is the first to do that. Yeah, he was a particular trifecta of series creator, showrunner slash executive producer, and head writer, mm -hmm. which are not necessarily all the same person. Oftentimes they're exclusive to one another. Uh, oftentimes you'll have a situation where somebody creates the idea for a series, but they don't manage the day-to-day -day of mm -hmm. doing the show running. And the showrunner or executive producer is usually the creative force that's in charge of like 
okaying all aspects of a series. And uh, they're also kind of the go-between between between the production itself and the network that it's on. (laughs) But they sometimes aren't also the head writer. To have someone who is all three, that really cements him as the auteur behind this. And I, I, you know, people quibble about auteur theory, but I think especially in television at this time, uh, David Chase had an incredible amount of control over the creative decisions being made on this series. And uh, it really was much more similar to film directing. He was born David de Cesare, Uh, in Mount Vernon, New York in 1945. And uh, he said he had a very difficult relationship with his parents. The quote from him about his mother is that she was a passive aggressive drama queen and a nervous woman who dominated any situation she was in by being so needy and always on the verge of hysteria. I wonder who that sounds like. (laughs) Yes, exactly. Clearly he was pulling quite a bit from his life in creating these characters. Uh, Norma Chase's mother absolutely was his his primary inspiration for the character of Livia, who was kind of there at the start of this whole thing. He said that right. originally his idea for the show was more about a guy having a really difficult relationship with his mother and living in New Jersey. And from there it was suggested, oh, why don't you make it about the mob? Because... Mm-hmm. That's something you're good at writing, and that's a way that will, you know, make this exciting, and it will give it a genre spin. He also said that he suffered from depression and panic attacks growing up. He said that he based the character of Dr. Melfi on his own personal therapist. Hmm. But um, he had been a a network television writer since the early 70s. His first job was on uh, the show Kolchak the Night Stalker, which was about a detective investigating various supernatural goings on in a city. And uh, that was the inspiration for the X-Files. So Ah, kind of crazy how that connects. Mm -hmm. I I love the X-Files, and I think that show was uh, definitely one of the precursors to the golden age that yes. was starting television down this route of like more cinematic production and just pushing the limits of content as well. Agreed. But yeah, after that, he wrote on the Rockford Files. He uh, was a writer all through its run and he became a producer toward the end. Uh, he won his first Emmy for writing on the Rockford Files as well. Okay. But after that, in the 80s and 90s, he... Uh, he was doing a lot of like smaller television writing, and he was also uh, writing movie scripts, which never were produced. Mm-hmm. It sounds like he got very frustrated with television work, even though he, clearly he was good at it. Basically, he couldn't get his, his film ideas off the ground, and I think that's what put him in the position of having this script for The Sopranos where he was like, well, it could be a movie, it could be a pilot, maybe I'll pitch it as a pilot, but then try to turn it into a movie. Basically, he didn't want to make television. Right. You had brought up uh, his manager, Lloyd Braun, uh, influencing him to turn it into into a pilot. Yeah. That's a fascinating figure. I can't wait to talk more about him when we get into Lost because he's uh, had a strange, like a bizarrely influential run in terms of crafting television that would just change everything, you know? (laughs) It's pretty wild. But yeah, he had a development deal with Brad Gray, who at the time was like mostly a comedy television guy. Like he'd done um, It's Gary Shandling's show and Mr. Show with Bob and David. Mm -hmm. Uh, That was on HBO. So he had a connection there. And I think that's what got him the idea to be like, hey, Chase, why don't you pitch this to HBO? They can put whatever content they want out. So you don't have to worry about language restriction. You don't have to worry about violence. You can make this show as real and as gritty as you want. And I think that appealed to him. He said specifically about Brad Gray, this is a direct quote from Chase's IMDb quotes page, which is uh, a treasure trove. Let me tell you, if you want to get exactly his mindset going into the development of The Sopranos, this is the place to come. He said, it wasn't something I was really dying to hear, having a television deal we're speaking of, uh, because my response in my head was, I don't give a fuck. I hate television. But I wasn't used to being talked to that way. And that's him describing Brad Gray 
pitching him on the idea of taking the sopranos to hbo <laughs> and yet he went on to make six seasons of one of the greatest tv shows of all time yeah yeah another thing the he irony. said he was like i wrote many 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 a script and they never got made. I could not get arrested, as they say. Nothing started to click movie-wise for me. All the scripts were either too dark or too this or too that. Their appetite for me didn't get wetted until The Sopranos. And once you see that you are someone who can make a billion dollars, they let you do anything. That's all it comes down to. So, very intense. Yeah. It's not mince words. It's so funny. I feel like our relationship with David Chase being huge fans of his work is one that just, it can't help but be combative, you know? His feeling what? is, the viewers, they don't know what the fuck they want. The networks, they just want bullshit. So... I'm going to make my great thing, and if nobody likes it, eh, who gives a fuck? And then everybody likes it, and he's like, well, you're all idiots for liking it, you know? He just has a constantly antagonistic posture <laughs> with everyone. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I think in some ways he felt shackled to this creation where he had to be constantly like coming up with ways to elongate the narrative but at the same time he also had more freedom than even any of those directors in the 70s ever did you know yeah. he yeah. had this gigantic apparatus where he was the sole i mean there were other writers but he was the absolute last word on any script and then took it as a director and had so much influence over every aspect of the production and it it changed everything, you know? Yeah. I mean, that's why we're talking about this particular season because Soprano season one comes out and that is a seismic cultural shift in television, in film, in media. I mean, there is pre-Sopranos and post-Sopranos and I mean, nothing would ever be the same. Yeah. So the difference yeah. is pretty stark. I mean, I, I went and I looked back at what was in the running for Emmy nominations and Emmy wins. And it oh, was all network television. Yeah. In 99 yeah. and then the years leading up to oh, yeah. uh, the Sopranos debut, it was all LA law, mm -hmm. um, NYPD blue, yeah. um, the practice Murphy Brown. Is that a big one? That might've been early nineties. Yeah, um, yeah. And I don't, yeah. So that might've been early nineties, but it was like, you know, NYPD blue um, sure. and a few other shows and maybe ER, but that was also a big one as well. And then Sopranos um, got and then the so many Emmy noms its first year and then never again would network TV dominate the Emmys. No. Like it was just cable from then on, like had it on lock. Well, this is interesting. I did yeah. not know this. The first time that it actually wins best outstanding drama is yeah. actually not until season five. It receives really? a ton of nominations all the way through. Wow. Seasons but like it didn't get... The it best did not receive exactly, that. which That's is so interesting. Crazy. There's a lot of competition for like the West Wing yeah. um, and a few of the other shows that I had um, listed. What well, one in '99 for best drama though? I don't you remember off it? the top of my head. Oh, you could probably look that up. So they didn't fully commit the Emmys. No, no. Oh, it's the think practice. The practice. That's what it was. Oh yeah, mm -hmm. David E. Kelly. He was mm -hmm. still. He was still running. He was still shit. around. Yeah, mm -hmm. absolutely. Yeah. I think yeah. What what Chase brings from his you know his desire to be a movie a movie director what he brings to the small screen that just informs the way that shows are made and developed oh it completely changes all the way to tv yeah, production absolutely. overnight another fascinating aspect to that to me something that really sold me on okay we gotta start with the sopranos and not just the sopranos but the inaugural season is 
after he made the pilot, it took 10 months for HBO to pick up the rest of the season, which is a very long time. And during that time, he had made a pitch to them to give him like some additional funds to essentially shoot a second hour of the pilot and make it into a movie. Mm -hmm. And I wonder how much his desire to do that held up the actual green lighting of the season. But I mean, you just think about it, dude. If The Sopranos had been a two-hour original movie on Mm -hmm. HBO that aired a few dozen times in the year of 1999 and then probably never again, nothing would have changed. Yeah, Media would have stayed the same, dude. It's crazy to think about, you know, because in 1999, you had analyzed this. You had another one. It was called like the Don's Analyst. It was a comedy with uh, Robert Loggia. And then it's like the Sopranos could have just been one more like movie about a mob therapist and done. There's probably a universe where that happened. Right. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Sopranos was a two hour movie and NBC, ABC and CBS continue to dominate the Emmys. Right. Interesting. I think the other thing that's pretty interesting is the idea that it also in some ways gives birth to like niche TV. Like it's not it's not the show that, you know, is is a has a small following or anything like that. It's a broad. No, but it's the a characters are monolith. so specific. Exactly. I mean, yeah. for Italian Americans, you know, this was both a show to love but also demonize too yeah. you know because i yeah. mean sure you had the anti-defamation league speaking yeah. out about it but then you also have all these italian americans who are like every sunday on hbo is like a little miniature holiday for us right. where we're <laughs> we're celebrated in all of our glory you know so how many episodes do you think we're going to devote to this show oh well uh I don't know if we'll do any extras once uh, we've gone through it episode by episode, but I think uh, we'll definitely do the solid 13, which in and of itself was revolutionary at the time. Half of a season compared to uh, network TV, where you would have 24, 24 25 episodes. episodes. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, I mean, I think just that it not only like brought the budget down on the show, but also allowed them to achieve such a consistency of quality that right. you just can't otherwise. You know, because a lot of my favorite shows from that era of network TV still would have a good like eight to 10 bad episodes per yeah. season. And that, yeah. that's just, as much as I love the X-Files, there isn't a season of that show that doesn't have a bunch of bad episodes in it. You're right, and you make a pretty good point. The Sopranos just totally changed the paradigm in terms of quality to be like basically every week with few exceptions, we're going to be delivering a feature film quality episode that is going to move the story forward, give you tons of character development, give you some really like, you know, exciting, bizarre, hilarious imagery. It uh, it changed the game. No, the thing that I thought was interesting was I was listening to an interview with Chase and he did say that he had considered it to be a dark comedy. Yeah. Um, so it's not a huge departure from what HBO was already putting out. Like I went and looked at some of their original content. Mm-hmm. Most of it's not dramas. Like they had one drama around the time that the Sopranos debuted and that was Oz. And yeah. then the majority of the other uh, original programming that they had was mostly comedy. So you had like Sex in the City. Sure. You had this show called Arliss, which I'm not particularly familiar with um there's also um like you said before uh mr show and i think there was maybe another one that i'm forgetting off the you know i can't remember off the top of my head tales from the crypt i feel like was one of the first big original shows and that for being a horror anthology is very comedic it's very Mm -hmm. tongue-in-cheek the whole Mm -hmm. way through and uh the thing about all these shows too is that they all had this kind of uh just ramshackle quality to them. They felt Mm -hmm. like the shows that a movie channel that plays softcore at night would produce in a way, you know, they had a bit of that vibe. Yeah. 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 Even leading up to Oz and sex in the city, which they're, they're starting to get more elaborate with their production, but there's still something just a little, a little cheaper about them. And Mm -hmm. the Sopranos is a just quantum leap forward in terms Mm -hmm. of production quality. Um, but I mean, all of that would not have been, uh, I think, um, so memorable. And I think it would not have been um, mm-hmm. so clear and so impactful without uh, James Gandolfini. His casting completely opened this show up and, and made it what it was. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. It, the, the fact that he could go from being such a 
gentle, empathetic, sensitive character to suddenly turning on a dime and becoming so scary, so physically imposing, so just primed for this sort of animalistic violence. I remember Chase said when he filmed the scene with Tony and Chris, this is skipping to the very end of the episode, but the the scene where Tony grabs Chris and is like, forget about all those distractions with uh, Hollywood and stuff like that. that, that just like, moment of menace where he turns from being so familial with him to so violent ready to just like rip his face off he said that's when i knew the show would work and that's when i knew that i could take this character to all sorts of like dark places that television never had yeah gandolfini do we want to get into him his uh his backstory a bit sure i mean he for the most part i think outside of the sopranos I had very little exposure to James Gandolfini except through like maybe True Romance. And I'm thinking like, what was the other um, really large role that he was in? Uh, I mean, he was he was like a gangster bad guy in Terminal might, Velocity. But that like, might have been. That's not even like a very small role, though. Yeah. yeah. True Romance is definitely the thing I, I think of. And I didn't see that movie until I'd already been watching The Sopranos. But uh, he has this one scene where he's uh, a hitman who's going to murder. Uh, mm-hmm. It's Patricia Arquette, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. He just has a moment with her where he's talking about the first time he killed someone. And he's like... Yeah, it was real bad. It was real rough for me. And then the second time, we're no fucking Mardi Gras either, you know? Right. And it's like, in this moment, he's so threatening. And yet you sense this gentleness in him too, that he kind of wants to talk her through the fact that he's about to like kill her and yeah. just like relate to her on a human level somehow. Yeah. It's a good scene, man. It's it's a good scene, but uh, it's a tiny glimmer of what he would be pulling off with Tony Soprano. There were a couple of different actors who had auditioned for the role, um, and a couple of them ended up being cast as other characters in the show. So like Stephen Van Zandt ended up being cast as Silvio Dante, who was by far one of my favorite, favorite characters on this show. He is so great. The scene where he walks out of Vesuvio's and walks down the street <laughs> and as he leaves frame it blows up is yes. so amazing his posture in that is shot so is great. so amazing he looks like a hall of presidents robot version of a gangster it's yes, like he does. his movements are so exaggerated it's all there it's all there everything from like it's the beautiful. hunched back yes the kind of the menacing kind of mean mugging in the face he's just got it all <laughs> i am living for steven van zandt in that role man i love it how it's like i am gonna choose one facial expression for this scene but right. i'm going to express the fuck out of it you know <laughs> oh it's so good so good yeah so i think he he had auditioned and apparently he even showed david chase like a short story or i had heard it was like an unproduced screenplay that he had written where he was playing this nightclub manager character called wow. silvio dante and so really? apparently chase just completely wrote the character based on wow. on his whole idea just because he's like awesome. i gotta get this guy in the show you know yeah. i gotta get him in there and then um michael Ruspoli was the other finalist he had worked with a bunch of the cast before they all really loved him and uh it was one of those things where he didn't get cast as tony but david chase was like oh yeah you know I, i'll find a part for you i'll write something right. in and he wrote in this role and he dies in like the first three episodes. So <laughs> right. it's just, uh, it's, it's a bummer for him, I'm sure. But what do you think of the pilot? I was just struck by how different it is from the show. The pilot to me really feels like half of a movie. Kind it's of very like propulsive, right? Chase it moves planning. very quickly, right? Very fast paced, covers mm-hmm. a ton of ground, has a ton of events, ton of incident, and it doesn't really give those moments the time to breathe as it would later in the season mm-hmm. where every single action that the mob takes becomes this sort of protracted, bizarre comedy of errors. Here it's like, boom, 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 you know, burn down Vesuvio's, get rid of this body. And uh, Tony is like introducing his entire family in like the first 20 minutes. It's it's, uh, very different for sure. The thing that I thought was so interesting just right off the bat was the way in which Chase introduces his his protagonist 
this yeah. anti-hero and he introduces him as being in, in like the most vulnerable way possible, right? There's oh, Gandolfini. Yeah, yeah. He's sitting in the waiting room. He's going to see his therapist for the first time ever. Mm-hmm. And he looks, he looks befuddled. He looks out of place. He looks uncomfortable. Well, he's looking at this statue. So first off, he's framed between its legs. Right. To suggest that this is potentially some maternal figure. But he's looking up at it. Yeah, as you say, befuddled. And you see the face of the statue. And it's this woman and she's staring. She has her arms behind her head. And she's got these like hard nipples that she's like pointing at him like daggers. And And the expression on her face is so austere. Oh, it's it's so confrontational to me. Mm -hmm. It's so like fucking deal with me, you know? Mm -hmm. This is a person who who has no way of interpreting the female figure he sees before him. He's right. looking at this figure and he is baffled. This right. figure doesn't fit into any concept of femininity that he has been raised with whatsoever. Right. And so he just he looks at it and he can't he can't make heads or tails of it. And that's I, great, you know. I think on any lesser show, yeah, they would have introduced Gandolfini shooting someone or beating the crap out of them in the first oh, season yeah. the excuse me the first scene that you would sure seen, sure right they set it up in some grandiose mob way mm-hmm. you know i'm thinking about like the Gotti movie with john travolta right. have you seen that right. shit he turns around <laughs> yeah. and he's standing next to the brooklyn bridge yep. and it looks like a tourism ad and he's like new york city <laughs> the greatest city in the fucking world you know <laughs> uh, and yeah. this show is putting yeah it's it's central mob figure this figure who is going to be the prototype for so many you know male anti-heroes over the next decade plus of tv and yeah you're right it starts with him at such a low point so vulnerable mm-hmm. so out of his element i mean that's the show right there yeah. you know and then i think it's interesting melfi walks out immediately and just is so welcoming and she smiles she seems so warm and so not confrontational so the opposite of that statue and i think that calms him down enough to actually walk in you know so the pilot starts with tony soprano meeting dr melfi he's been referred to see a therapist to see a psychiatrist because he's been having panic attacks a a crucial Um, detail i think that it's not that he chose to go to therapy. Right. It's that this was a medically mandated thing mm-hmm. that he has to do. And yep. I, I think that's key because otherwise you would have a lot more trouble just believing in this guy. You would be like, who is this guy who just decides to go to therapy right. out of nowhere? You know, I mean, yeah. it just it didn't happen in this culture. <laughs> not at all. Yeah. So he ends up, he goes to see Dr. Melfi. He's referred, he has his first session with her. And the thing that gets me right off the bat is the fact that he lies to her, right? So he starts off talking about having had, or he, he talks about the ducks. I think that's how it starts. Yeah. Um, there's that uh, sequence where, you know, he goes and he picks up the newspaper. Um, oh, did you see the headline there. on oh, the yeah. front of it? Yeah. Yeah. yeah about you know, Clinton, Clinton saying Medicaid's going to run out yeah. and he's shaking his head. So yeah. it's just like <laughs> immediately he's oppressed by, you know, this liberal culture of the nineties, you know, and it's not he's... even that like the voiceover <laughs> is saying like, Hey, I felt as though I did not get in at the ground floor. And so again, like this is another moment where someone is thinking, okay, when I'm 65, when I'm about to retire, I'm not going to have that safety net available to me when I'm older and when I'm no longer, you know, being a gangster. Not that I I even think that he would think about that, but. Do you think it's um, that or do you think do you think it's just that he feels repressed and out of context in a progressive society? Just the fact that Clinton is president and that he's worried about medicaid is something that grinds this guy's gears you know that's a good he's point. like all I these degenerates looking for a handout that's how he sees things you know it's just that's purely transactional this show comes out right as we have this sea change of you know 9-11 and the bush administration and it's mm-hmm. like suddenly the cultural context around him is really different. You know, yeah. I mean, there's that famous line later in uh, season one where he's like, out there it's the 90s and here it's 1954. Right. And uh, it's it's great. But at the same time, we were about to enter kind of a, a retrograde era in culture where everyone yeah. was like pulling back because things seemed so, you know, unstable and frightening. So scary. So, yeah. So he sits down with Melfi. I think this is something we got to talk about. Just sort of 
what the portrayal of therapy on this show mm, represented yes. at the time, how mm -hmm. much more realistic it was mm. and how much more detailed it was. You know, the whole idea of her waiting for him to speak and really yeah. not like volunteering anything. It, yeah. it, it, it seems like a greater level of realism. But then, you know, that, that was the common opinion at the time. How, how do you think it holds up, though? Um, <laughs> so as someone who is intimately knowledgeable about the mental health field, yes, yes, this is why I, I have a lot. To, oh, yes. I know you did. Yeah, mm -hmm. I, I will have a lot to say about Dr. Melfi over the course of this miniseries. Oh, sometimes, okay. sometimes she gets it right, mm. and then there's other times where you just got to shake your head and just go, "What." what is happening here and what is she choosing to do and why is she choosing to do that? Right. So we're going to be grading her kind of on a session by session basis. I, that is how I've chosen okay. to do this. There will be a Melfi grade at the end of every single episode of this podcast. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Looking forward but to that. I, can I jump ahead and just go ahead yeah. and grade yeah. her? Yeah. She go, gets an A. She gets an oh, A during wow. this episode. Yeah. Because you know what? She does exactly what you said that she did just a few moments ago. She came in, she showed up, she was hospitable. She was warm and welcoming. She was curious. Mm -hmm. All the things that anyone probably would want yeah. from a therapist, right? It's in the other episodes where I just kind of, I'm just kind of like, you know, sh scratching my head. But yeah, <laughs> in this episode, she gets it all right. She's curious. She asks the client to think about what's going on with him and to be curious about his own emotions to, to varying like success, right? Sometimes yeah. he has some insight. And then sometimes Mr. Soprano does not at all. Well, he walks right out of their first session, doesn't yeah. he? Yeah, yeah, he yeah. does. Now, there are many things about her that automatically made him more susceptible to therapy and to opening up that she didn't actually have control over. Like the, the fact that she's Italian, The right? fact that she's Italian, mm -hmm. the fact that she's a woman. Mm -hmm. I think if he had gone to a different therapist, a therapist with a different cultural background, mm -hmm. uh, a male therapist. I don't think he would have told him anything. You Probably know? not. Probably not. And I mean, I think that's so interesting because at the end of the pilot, I think he cries in her office, doesn't he? He does. Yeah. He does, she which, pushes over the tissues and yeah. that nice wide shot. Yeah. She, yeah. Yep. Again. Yeah. I think you're right. Like had that been a man or had that been someone from a different cultural background, I don't think she would have, I don't think that they would have been progress. able to pry that yeah. type of like vulnerability out of him. Basically when he gets into the session, they start introducing the characters very rapidly with mm -hmm. him in voiceover, which is actually him speaking to Melfi that outlines you know sort of his his average day the people who he sees and that's where this starts to feel very good fellas you know yep. where you get yep. the the fast pace and the the voiceover filling in the gaps in between scenes and things yeah. like that so we meet his family at the outset i think he talks about his family first so we get to see yeah. carmela we see sure. aj we see meadow his daughter yeah we see the ducks oh, um, yeah. and how fond he is of the ducks and how uh, much he likes them and um, I think it's a really... beautiful recurring symbol. For Absolutely. This show. There are certain lines in that, in that sequence that are delivered by other characters, so like Carmela, that point to or just kind of like are hints about like where their marriage is at, mm -hmm. um, the state of their relationship that I think aren't really, I didn't pick up on them. I'll put it that way. I did not pick up really? on them the like, very like first what? time I watched. Because there's the scene where she is, I think, Gandolfini walks into the kitchen. Mm -hmm. He looks at this book of like birds. <laughs> this he's giant such a great, screaming giant bald of, eagle on the cover. Yeah. It's so, so he's, good. He's thumbing through this and Carmela yeah. says, hey, AJ's got his birthday party. Make sure that you're home on time, right? And he mm -hmm. goes, yeah, I'll be home from work on time. And she just says, that's not what I'm talking about. She says something to that effect. Mm. And he just looks at her. And at that point, I didn't really think, oh, she's already about the his mistress. She already knows, man. First thing in the morning. She, yeah. yeah, exactly. Oh, yeah. No, uh, she's known. I mean, she's it, been known. She, she yes, yes. <laughs> and she uh, has been known. I think too, uh, there's a moment there where he actually, he smacks her ass and you see like her get mildly annoyed, but she, she does not, engage with him physically at all not and at all. he's you know feeling good he's he's happy about the ducks he's full of this joie de vivre and everyone else around him is just like uh you know we're stuck in the day-to-day -day, like yeah. bullshit school yeah. kids work and of course of course he's gonna feel that way i mean what does he do for work all day he goes he hangs out with his his friends yeah. he collects money that he has stolen <laughs> Right. <laughs> he bangs his gumas and that's it. I mean, what a schedule he's got. Right. <laughs> yeah. 
So there's a sequence with the family. It moves on to the sequence with Christopher. Sure. Um, yeah. And they're collecting from, I believe the guy's, the character's name is Mahaffey. He's like the insurance uh, salesman or insurance rep. Um, yeah, that guy's been in so much stuff. Yeah, he ha- he is a fam- it's, I As soon as I saw him, I think I've seen this guy in mm-hmm. other TV shows. I couldn't place a... He I couldn't place him. Yeah. He was this hitman on Rubicon. He was really good on that show. Mm-hmm. Very menacing, very tall. Mm-hmm. But in this, you know, despite his stature or whatever, they just like take him apart in this scene. Yeah. I I love the part where Melfi interrupts him when he talks about the business of an outstanding loan. And she's like, yes. let me just stop you right there. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know where this is going, but, right. and it's so great. She knows he's a fucking mobster yeah. from the first minute. Yeah. She you knows know? what he is too. I mean, it's she's, so obvious. she's from Jersey. I think she mm-hmm. just, there's such a vibe. She, mm-hmm. she can tell instantly, you know, he doesn't even have to give his cover story of waste management consultant. She, she, she sees right knows. through that. Yeah. Yeah. Which and, I think is, again, that's why I give her an A. She sees right through the bs right she's good and but she's still empathetic she yeah. is she manages yeah. to still be empathetic mm-hmm. and so i think and, oh, go ahead yeah. just the part where the the cut on we had coffee to coffee cups hitting the pavement right i mean to me that's such a like proto breaking bad moment you mm-hmm. know that's such a absurdist comedy sharp edit on mm-hmm. a word that i i think just wasn't happening in television before this from there, what mm-hmm. I think they they have the scene with outside of the the meat market. Oh yeah, the I pork think that's store. what comes. That's and I, I mean I'm hopping. It's ahead. not satrioles yeah. in the pilot. It's not. Yeah. No, it's like centennies or something like mm-hmm. that. Um, I w- we can probably come back to that scene later, but I would say that's probably my favorite scene in the entire episode. Really? Oh, yeah. let's get into it then. Yeah, I, it's just everything about that. I mean, we're going to come back to Goodfellas right here, oh, which sure. it feels so feels so lighthearted and it's mm-hmm. so cheerful it's so familial it, everyone yes. feels like they're related yes they, they all each know other each other such a long time. they're laughing they're talking yeah. about even as they're talking about this problem that they have oh they're um, breaking balls rival. absolutely so exactly yeah. they're, they're, it's yeah. like got the oh hey like it's got all of that there <laughs> everyone <laughs> is just it. so yeah you can't you can't yeah. not have that but yeah. yeah i think that that's probably my favorite uh scene I love the, the way it's shot pilot. too. It's mm-hmm. very wide angles on everybody. Yeah. And it really, yeah. it's like wide, low angles. It makes them all seem larger than life. Larger than life. And the color filtering. Oh yeah. In, on the sky. Yeah. It almost makes mm-hmm. it feel as though he's reminiscing on something that happened a long time ago. Sure. Even though it's something that actually occurred, I'm assuming within like the last few weeks or months. Well, maybe too. It's, it's just the context of these are his guys and not just that, but this crew was his father's crew. Right. Like right. Polly and Big Pussy were his father's right. soldiers. They 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 worked for him. And Tony inheriting them was sort of this this sign just of their confidence in him and how much he was part of the mob family, not mm-hmm. you know, not just related or anything. So yeah, I think seeing them all together, there is that nostalgia. There's that sense of now he's with his people, he's with his crew. And uh, yeah, yeah, it's hearkening back to better times. Yeah, that is the reason why I enjoyed that sequence so much. It, it's It's got Silvio Dante, it's got Steven Van Zandt. Like... Interesting thing about that, though. What's Did that? Did you notice? No. no. Mm. Silvio is not part of the crew in this episode. He's He shows up and they say, what are you doing? Yeah, you're right. He just runs the nightclub. That's right. In the pilot. That's right. Then they turn him into uh, into an actual like one of the mobsters. Uh, I'm glad that they did that. Oh, totally. And it just it (laughs) it shows there are a lot of little tweaks like that. The other big tweak is that uh, Tony in the pilot is actually the Don of North Jersey. He mm-hmm. runs North Jersey. Mm-hmm. And immediately after the pilot, he's like severely demoted. He's yeah. a capo. He he's only a capo, runs a crew right. for the entire first season. He's underboss to uh to Junior when Junior takes over, but he's right. not acting boss, I think, until almost the end of the show. Right. So he doesn't get back to his position in the pilot until like I think it's the like end, end of, of season five. Yeah. Oh yeah. Wow. that's right. That's right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I think that that's great. Yeah, that that whole sequence is one of my favorites. Awesome, um, totally. I think from there, like it moves on to 
it follows Christopher a little bit. Oh, you get his hit on email Kolar. Right. So I you love see that, that scene. That, that scene is, is so beautifully staged the way the camera is just sort of circling around them mm-hmm. uh i mean and the whole thing the the coke on the cleaver yeah. and then him spewing blood all over it and yeah. it's just the show has a ton of like really horrific really well staged hits but but mm-hmm. my i think the most interesting part of that whole scene though is when he delivers the next three shots it cuts to three black and white photographs on the wall Mm -hmm. of Humphrey Bogart, Dean Martin, Martin. and Edward G. Robinson. Wow. And I find that really fascinating because that is two guys who played tough guys, who played gangsters, who Mm -hmm. played figures in film noir and crime stories. And one guy who was a singer, entertainer, general, all around nice guy who actually had mob ties. And Uh. I think... The reason they cut to all of them, though, is because this is what Christopher really wants. This is Mm -hmm. why he's willing to kill someone. Mm -hmm. He wants the fame. He wants Mm -hmm. the adulation. He wants the the reputation of being a mobster. He wants what those guys have, even though they were never actually in a crew. They were never organized crime. That's that's his ultimate goal is to be remembered as like an Edward G. Robinson. Yeah. You know, it's not not anything you ever think about with these guys. It's it's a totally off center sort of motivation. Do you think that that was his first kill? Yeah, I think so. I don't know. The way he talks about it later on. It made me think it was the first time he'd actually killed someone. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. This And that he thought he was going to do this and be a made man immediately. Yeah. It takes a lot longer than that. There was a whole thing in the late 90s where no one was being made. They were saying the books were closed because Mm. the RICO indictments had become so damaging to the organization. Which he does mention. Yep. To bring new people in and like mint them at that level. It would just like endanger the whole crew but also i think i mean tony just knows he's still a fuck up he's still a kid you know mm-hmm. he's a, he says in the very his very first line is like my mother said i shouldn't come in today right so, I was so <laughs> nauseous he's like hung over and he's saying his mom was gonna give him a note <laughs> so he didn't have to go to mom. work you know so terrible at that point so we already know that tony is going to be seeking out therapy We know that there is uh, tension between himself and his wife. There's the introduction of this problem between his crew and the Kohler crew. There's also this other problem that's introduced, and that is the conflict between himself and Uncle June, his father's brother. Um, Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uncle June. Also a great character, right? <laughs> the malcontent, the, the constantly thwarted Uncle Junior, oh man. Oh my gosh. I you didn't have really to know feel his backstory. Yeah, you do. You really do. Like that's <laughs> as as villainous and as capricious as he seems at the outset. You as you learn more about him, I felt more for the character. He's he's feeling the lack of respect constantly. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I think on some level, he knows he'll never really be able to get it. I mean, yeah. at this point, especially, he just yeah. knows people are never going to look at him as the Don, yep. the guy, yep. you know? Uh, but yeah, Dominic Chinese, amazing. One of amazing. my favorite actors on the show. So I think that that, what happens from there? Um uh, well, we get the uh, the barbecue panic attack and mm-hmm. he goes in for the MRI right. and you get Carmela's big speech about how uh, you're going, to, going hell to hell when you die. Yeah. But then when he goes in, she gives him the little the little the you wave. okay wave. Yes. And it's like the tension with her is so fascinating from yeah. the start too. You immediately have that. She is so self-righteous. She is so assured mm-hmm. in her own morality. Mm-hmm. And yet at the same time, she is so tied to this man who she knows represents everything she doesn't want to be. <laughs> that She's scene, the first time I watched it, it actually played, I, I found it kind of funny. Like mm-hmm. as ugly as it was, it is, there's a part of me that did laugh at it, if only because she delivers that line. And then Chase immediately cuts to the attendant who is tucking Tony into the MRI machine. And so you think that they're having this very intimate, close conversation about, you know, the state of their relationship, how it's falling apart, how he's trying to be a better husband, but he's failing at it, how she basically hates being in this marriage. And then (laughs) it cuts to this woman who was just kind of helping Tony into the MRI machine. And you realize, oh, wait, 
She's been here the whole time and has been listening to this, <laughs> oh, this yeah. conversation. Oh, yeah. doesn't care. She Absolutely. doesn't care. Exactly. exactly. They're letting all this hang out. Yeah, yeah they really are. They just, yeah. oof. <laughs> it is all out there. Jumping forward a bit. I mean, we get the Gary Cooper speech in mm-hmm. therapy. That's uh, a big thing they keep coming mm-hmm. back to. You know, his idea of the, the idealized American male being this strong, silent type. But yeah. you can't ever, like, put that back in the box once they actually open up at all. Yeah. And uh, I think that ties into his own insecurity his own sense of his masculinity's already been compromised yeah. and i mean did you see the look that he gives melfi when she says the doctor told me that you think you're depressed did you catch oh. that look man like when she drops that word he just yeah. looks at her like you should not have said that don't ever say that word yeah. like in my presence i am not capable sure of feeling depressed sure. right i'm not capable of being so compromised absolutely right. mm-hmm. yeah the scene after right around here where um pussy's helping christopher get rid of the body i thought that was interesting because that was very very expository in the way that the show doesn't tend to be later on they really Mm -hmm. needed to set up how this whole deal that was going on would be compromised by the hit being public Mm -hmm. because christopher wants it to be a message job as he says where it's a murder that you know sends out this message that no one should fuck around with me and pussy's like no no you gotta keep this quiet we gotta just cut him up and like bury him somewhere where no one will ever find him so that they think oh maybe he'll come back if we do what soprano's crew wants and christopher's like all about the the infamy of this situation but i think later in the show they would never explain so thoroughly why they would need to like get rid Mm -hmm. of a body instead of leaving it out there the the hits happen and they're very procedural for these yeah. guys you know they they know what they're doing yeah of course you got the introduction of livia one of the great Oof. villains in all of television she really is by the end of the episode it's pretty obvious that she's the villain right oh, like yeah. the it's not bad. corrado yeah it's yeah, not yeah. corrado at all like no, for no. all of the problems between he and tony about like is corrado allowed to whack pussy Malenga yeah. at uh, at Artie bucos that's not even like the largest conflict the thing yeah, that most Junior's not a threat to not at all not in the yet. way that Olivia is Olivia has just wrought such deep psychic scars in this man already mm-hmm. and you know David Chase said that he based this character off of his mother and off of like the difficult relationship he had with her and he said it was almost impossible to find this person they saw thousands of actresses and and it just was not working and I think Livia is so specific i think david chase said you know it was so hard to nail that down but then for myself and for i think so many viewers we saw this character and we immediately were like oh no like i've known someone who who at least has glimmers of that behavior you know Mm -hmm. who who fulfilled that matriarch role in the family but also was was so difficult just impossible to be around yeah i mean she's she's tough man no kidding <laughs> there, no, there is there's no, no way you could make her, with her there is no way you could make that character that woman happy yeah <laughs> no not at all she would never allow herself to, to be happy exhibit happiness mm-hmm. in front of a person she would never let tony believe that he had like made her day better for one yeah. second yeah. yeah yeah what was your favorite scene you know, I think my favorite scene is when he has the breakthrough with Melfi about the ducks because mm, mm-hmm. he goes through so many different emotions there. When the session starts, he's like in a really nice suit and tie. You mm-hmm. can tell he's feeling better. He feels like the pharmaceutical solution that she's given him has already fixed everything up. And so mm-hmm. now he's coming by to just say, yeah, I'm okay now. So thanks for see your you input later. and see mm-hmm. you later. And then she really pushes him with, yeah, the Prozac hasn't even built up in your bloodstream yet. Right. It's just us talking that's bringing you to this this better level. And they get into it about the ducks and he starts crying and they cut to that beautiful wide where she pushes the tissues over, which is, you know, I mean, a small thing, but something we might mention too, that this show was shot on film and was shot widescreen from the very start, which was still mm. pretty unusual in 1999. Right. It worked on HBO because that's a channel where they play movies all the time. They're already sort of in this premium, more theatrical format. And so 
right from the jump, the show looks more like a movie. They can do a mm-hmm. big framing like that with two characters with negative space between them and mm-hmm. uh, just like play out a quiet moment in that. And and you could never do that on, you know, network TV that's f- shot four by three, you know, yeah. it's, it's just a totally different feel. So yeah, that, that would definitely be my favorite. Okay. All right. So by the end of that episode, there have been a number of different plot lines set up where we've got Tony and Carmela. We have Tony and his conflict with Uncle June. We've got Tony and Melfi. Well, I mean, you're right that there's just there's conflict from all these different sides. You mm-hmm. know, the the last conversation between Livia and Junior in the car before they go. show up at the barbecue. Essentially, Junior is floating the idea that he might have to kill Tony. Yep. And Livia is processing that without really even looking at him he he keeps trying to look over at her and gauge her reaction and she's keeping it all like she's she's really got her poker face on at the end yeah although you sense that she is considering it and it's like and that's the whole conflict of the season just ready to go right there yeah and that's how the episode ends um it ends with a barbecue Ends with a birthday party. <laughs> yeah, isn't that so funny? Ends and a with nice a bar- little uh, dolly slide back over to the empty pool, you know? Yep. And uh, the beast in me comes in. That's uh, Nick Lowe. Mm-hmm. Beautiful song. The first of many almost on the nose uh, musical choices at the end of the episode. But like, I think, I think the show did a really good job of towing that line where the ending song that leads you into the credits just hits that note of like, this is everything that the episode was and gives you some kind of emotional resolution. I think they pioneered that and they, they do it really well all through the series. Mm -hmm. So much of the writing as good and as amazing as it was, was so very loose. Mm -hmm. Um, And so the process, and we might get into that in one of the further episodes is the process of writing and, and, constructing each season was very very loose i got the sense that chase didn't quite know how the first season was going to end as he's sitting down with his team of writers at the very before they've even put like pen to paper it's he not doesn't quite know arc it's yeah. not an overarching serialized narrative that continues week to week i think yeah. we'll get into it but the first season more has mini arcs the first few episodes constitute one arc and then they have a lot of standalone stuff. And then the end of the season is very like contained in an arc. And I think that actually gets exaggerated in the later seasons where essentially he'll experiment for almost all of the episodes and then like cram all of the, the dramatic turns, the narrative incident into like two episodes at the end. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's, that's something that I think it produces incredible singular episodes later in the show, but it yeah. also makes you feel like, ah, I don't know if this show still knows where it's going. Right. And you get a little taste of that in season one, but I think season one is still so propulsive. It's introducing so many characters, so many conflicts, as you were saying, that it it feels tighter. It, yeah. it definitely feels more propulsive, I would mm-hmm. say. Mm-hmm. So what do you think? Um do you want to play how much TV have you watched? <laughs> we we have a a game devised that is based around just the the eternal question of how rotten is Alex's brain. There we go. <laughs> um, yeah. It's it's a, a game about titles of episodes of TV. The, the thing about it is it's some of the least useful knowledge a person could possibly store in their head at the Which title are all of an about episode it. of a show. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you totally. are. But, but the title of an episode of a show is so inconsequential. I feel like this is something that only happened because of like the rise of TV guide where you, right. know, you needed to know if you had seen an episode of a show before or not, or, Oh, that's that episode where that thing happens. Mm-hmm. And it's only really when you get into like the nineties and then the golden age prestige TV that you start to see these more like pretentious Baroque episode titles where oh, people yeah. are really showing off. There is a lot uh, of that. Yeah. A lot of them are uh, stuck in my brain forever. All right. So, so this I guess is the f- we're going to do those. We're doing this. Oh, yeah, we're going to do this. Oh, man. So this is the first ever. If this goes really badly, 
<laughs> I was just thinking, uh, you know, I'm trying to set it up in this self-deprecating way, but if I face plan on these, I'm actually going to just like feel like shit. I really, no, and that means we're going to continue doing it then. Oh, thanks. Great. Yes. <laughs> okay. So, so first ever, how am, much TV has Alex I am watched? Not looking at my computer, which has no okay. Wikipedia bullshit open, nothing like that. Okay. Uh, my phone, I am placing down. So I am not referencing anything. I am right. literally staring at a wall right now. All right. So in this game, I am going to be reading Alex a description, a brief description of an episode of TV. And I'm sticking actually with The Sopranos just to make it easy for you. Oh, um, and so maybe. Alex's job is going to be to name the episode, the episode title. Okay. Are you ready, man? Let's do it. All right. So this episode ends with Tony Soprano dreaming that he has taken up bricklaying and is working outside an old house. During this episode, uh, he dreams uh, that he is a bricklayer and that he begins speaking Italian and sees a shadowy female figure standing on the stairs inside the home. What episode is this? This is season five. Which which season of the show is this? Are you asking for a hint? Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, this is season four. Season four. Oh boy. Well, you're in trouble now. Oh man, because I I thought it was the test dream from season mm. five, no. but if it's season four, mm. oh man. All right, yeah, I I I need another hint as far All as right. like what the title actually sounds like. Um, so the title has three words. It is a reference to a foreign band, and it's also the name of a few other episodes of television or movies, excuse me. Yeah. It's the, also the name of several movies. Yeah. It's also the name of a few movies. I'll say that. A yeah. few movies. Oh my God. No, I got to give up. What? I know that. Okay. I'm so All ashamed. Right. So the episode is called Calling All Cars. Oh, man. Mm -hmm. Uh, mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. Season four, man. That's a I tough knew that one. was going to get you. I knew yeah. that this was your least favorite season. So I just went right for that. <laughs> <laughs> the season where so little happens. Uh, All right. Nice. Okay. Um, let's see. Okay. Let's, so, let's try another show. Let's right, try let's... to jump to a different series. Oh, pff, all right. All right. You're putting me on the spot there. Oh, yeah. um, okay. You got some randomizer, some way to, or no, mm. you're just going to pick. No, I'm just going to pick. No, nope. you you're, know what? We're sticking with I two see, of the Sopranos. We're not changing the rules. Nice try. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So in this, yeah, in this episode, Polly Walnuts is released from jail and he receives a party thrown for him at the Bada Bing. And this is also the episode where Adriana seeks to get engaged to Christopher because she believes that it will prevent her from having to testify against him. Oh, man. This is also a season four episode. <laughs> That's right. That's fucked up. <laughs> I'm going to say it right now. Uh, yeah. Boy. Um, now, the only, the only one that's coming to me right now is I know it's not Whitecaps. I know it's not the last episode of the season. Nope. It's four uh, words. Four words. And it's about the very game that we're playing. Season four. Oh, man. Oh, it is called Watching Too Much Television. There you go. Ah, burr, 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 that, was, burr, burr. that was a good hint. I appreciate that. Hint. Yes. <laughs> I throw you a lifeline there. <laughs> you really did. All right. You're one for two. We'll stop there. <laughs> wow. Wow. Instantly. <laughs> instantly critical. That's great. Oh, boy. Just the denigration starts right away. This is good. This is good. Okay. All right. Uh, um, how so about something not from season four, please? <laughs> Let's just stick with two. Let's just do two. We'll give you huh? two. No, yeah. no, no, no. One more. Come on. Got to give me uh, best of three. All right. Best of three. All right. Give me one second. Yeah. Okay. So let's go. I don't know. I, I feel like I maybe should go a little bit easy on you. Get out of here. All Get right, out of right, here with right, that. All right. All right. All right. All right. You staying with the Sopranos? Yeah, I'm going to stick with the Sopranos. It's the theme. Um, so this is the episode where Chris discovers a dead friend of his. We talking season one dead friend of his? Mm. 
Maybe. I mean, <laughs> I feel like he he stumbles upon a lot of dead acquaintances. He uh, does. Yeah, yeah. I mean, if we're talking season one, that would be Meadowlands. Ding, 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 ding. No, there you go. come yeah, on. That's you right. can't I do season forward. one. Mm-hmm. I we're did so deep in season one. No, 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 no. I'm not accepting that. You yeah, gotta... it's too late. <laughs> <laughs> you got two out of three. That's good. I feel like you were just throwing me a bone on that last one, man. All right. I'll come back with some harder ones later. Okay. All right. So, so that's the first episode of The Sopranos. Yeah, we'll be back next week with episode two, 46 long. I want to thank everyone for listening. Please remember to follow, rate, and review. You can email us questions at goatseasonpod at gmail.com. I also want to thank Janice O'Leary for our artwork. Josh Sullivan for our intro music and Battlequake for our outro. See you next week. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.